continue to. <clears throat> well, we want to continue to build upon what it is that we looked at last week in Romans chapter five. We were in Romans chapter five, verses one through five last week. We will be in Romans five six through eleven this morning. Last week we saw how through Christ we have peace with God, and we stand in this position of grace with Him, and that by God's hand we are becoming people of hope, and that we are people of hope boast in the glory of God. We boast in the glory of God being displayed in our lives. We boast in the glory of God being our greatest pursuit. I talked about last week that really for the believer, the heart of the believer should be, as we sung after the sermon last week, as long as you are glorified. That's that's really that should be the heartbeat of the Christian. God, as long as you're glorified. I I can go through times of plenty as long as you're glorified. I can, go through, I can go through times of loss as long as you're glorified. And I can go certainly through the process of becoming a, as I said last week, a skinny person spiritually in hope that my hope would be centralized in God and my hope in his glory being displayed would be central to my life, which is where it should be because it's a certainty. God will be glorified. And so if my hope is in his glory, then my hope is never put to shame. But not only do I hope and I boast and I rejoice in the glory of God, but I actually rejoice and boast in the process that he takes me through in order to be a person of hope. And that process includes trials and tribulations, hardship, suffering. But that leads to perseverance. And perseverance produces character. I become refined when I walk through the fires of God's refining fire. And I become actually, as I come out the other end, as if, you know, just to let you know, you never come out the other end in this life, you know? It's like not until you go to be with Jesus are you actually out on the other end of this process of refinement, of sanctification, So if life feels like it just never lets up, it's because God is at work. The flame shall not hurt you. He only designs your dross to consume and your gold to refine. So we boast in the process of becoming people of hope. Because God, in his ordained way of doing that, is to bring us through hardship, it can become very easy to become distracted upon those things, the hardships. The very things that God is using in our life to make us like Christ sometimes become the thing that we end up focusing on most and we lose sight of what it is that God is doing and his hand that's involved in really the reason why we can boast in it. I mean, it's very strange for the Christian, right? Life is hard, and I'm boasting, I'm, I'm rejoicing in the difficulty of life because I know it's leading to something. Now, to the degree of which I understand God's 
purposes and his presence involved in that is to the degree of which I'll be able to boast in the hardship. When my hardship becomes my world and it begins to eclipse God and pushes him out of the center of my life, that's when I cease to rejoice in the difficulty. And I just want the difficulty to go away. I just want it to stop. And my prayers turn from God, just as long as you're glorified, to would you please remove this from my life? What our text does for us this morning is it brings God back into focus, specifically the Lord Jesus Christ. He does a wonderful job here. The Lord, he knows us so well, doesn't he? He knows that the very things that we're called to boast in, the difficulties of life that make us like Christ, are the things that can push Christ out of the picture. And so what does Paul do? What does God do? The very next section, he brings Christ back in front and center for us in verses 6 through 11. So that Christ is like, he's rising like this spire in our lives, and he, and he eclipses all the hardships and the difficulties. And we would look upon him. And in looking upon him, we see the sight, the image of the one that I'm being conformed into. And I know that all the hardship and difficulty is bringing me to that. And then I can go, okay, yes, I can rejoice in all of this because that, him, that's what I'm being made like. I'm becoming like him because of this. And the idea of becoming like him is so wonderful to me that I wouldn't trade in any of this stuff in the world for it. I wouldn't ask you, God, to get rid of any of this stuff because this is the stuff that's making me like Jesus and preparing me to receive him for eternity and to enjoy him for all of eternity as well. And that's what's happening in our text. His love and our life, the life that we have in Christ because of the love of God displayed to us in the Son becomes front and center and becomes what we are called to, to meditate upon and think upon this morning. So if you would, join me in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, as I read through it. And then we want to notice four things in particular this morning from our text that I pray are helpful and encouraging and some sanctifying for us. Romans chapter 5, through, verse 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good, good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received Reconciliation. Yeah, I hope you can see the centrality of Christ. Himself, his work, what he accomplishes for us. He's, he's, he does that because the love 
of the Father, the triune God even, moves him to doing that, and then how we respond. What's our response? Worship and rejoicing. So I want to look at this morning, I want to see our change. The text describes a change that takes place within us. It talks about how Christ's death brings about this change in our lives, how God's love brings about Christ's death, and lastly, how our worship is the response to his love. Firstly, our change. You'll notice that it's really a change in standing. Now, I want to say this. What the text focuses on this morning for us is the change in our standing before God. It is a, it is a declaration, it's a divine declaration on behalf because he says it is so, it is so. He doesn't yet get into the change in our nature, which you'll notice in the text, he actually emphasizes our sinful nature, but then emphasizes our new standing in him. Now, Paul will get into our new nature in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, but for right now, he wants us to know that it is a divine declaration from God concerning our position and standing before him, and it does lead to a new nature. And I have talked about and I have stressed the importance of the Christian's new nature because, honestly, I have a fear of filling people's heads with the right information and it not transforming their heart and becoming a new person. I, I, I am so adverse and I'm so opposed to the idea, and I think you guys know this, of people coming in through that door and sitting in that chair and learning stuff. Even if it's good stuff and biblical stuff and theological stuff and doctrinal stuff, I, I want us to learn the stuff because you got to learn the stuff in order to be changed. But if all it does is it's just information that you know and you can walk out of here and talk theologically with people, but you have not been ultimately transformed to be more like Christ fundamentally, then I have failed in my job to, to at least communicate that that's the goal. Because that's, that is the biblical goal. You and I, we need to be more like Jesus in our character than we were yesterday and than we are today. To be more patient, to be more loving, to be more jealous and, and desirous of the truth, to be more sacrificial, to be a better husband and to be a better wife and to be a better father and to be a better mother and to be a better friend and to be a better employee and a better coworker and a better neighbor. All of those things, because we've been gripped by the truth of God's word to transform us to being different people fundamentally. Now, he, he, Paul will spend a lot of time in talking about that aspect in Romans 6, 7, and 8. But what he talks about today is this divine declaration of how he sees us, and he wants us to know this is who you are. And i got to tell you, the changed nature that doesn't happen unless he divinely declares you to be somebody that you're not and something that you cannot be on your own. So we need this declaration. It's a wonderful declaration. It's good. It's like the best news. What's the gospel? 
the good news, the, the pronouncement and the proclamation that, that you are no longer who you were, and he no longer sees you that way, but now he sees you in a different light. And so the text tells us, what is that light? We see the change, how we're described in the text, who we were. We see weak, verse 6, ungodly, verse 6, sinner, verse 8, enemy, verse 10. It makes me think about what it is that he described in Romans chapter 1. Take everything that you, we learned about in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. And you begin to import that into what it means, what Paul is describing here. People who claimed to be wise became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. People who have been given up to lust of their own hearts, to impurity, dishonoring of their bodies. People who have exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is what it means, who he's describing in Romans chapter 5. To be weak is to be morally sick. To be ungodly is to be disrespectful of what is holy. To be a sinner is to be depraved and detestable. And lastly, we are called the enemies of his, openly hostile with deep-seated hatred. And he says, that's, you'll notice, he says, that's who we were in verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. For while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies. Now, not only does it change the fact that we are no longer seen in God's sight anymore because we were that way, but it also reminds us that that is how we actively and openly lived. Before knowing Christ, we lived openly, morally sick, disrespecting what is holy, depraved, and openly hostile with a deep-seated hatred towards God. That was our activity. That was our lives. But God changed all that. God changed that to a different standing. And we see how that's described in verses 9, 10, and 11. We see that we've been justified. We've been reconciled three times. In verses 10 and 11, the word reconciled is used. And that we've been saved as well. This is the divine declaration on God's behalf. We've been justified. We've been acquitted of all of our guilt. We've been reconciled. I talked about last week, not only has, has there been a judicial ju declaration of not being guilty anymore, but there's been a, a change in our relationship with God as well to now we are living peaceably with him. Where we used to be enemies and at war, now we live at peace with him. We've been reconciled. And he stresses that by using that term reconciled three times in verses 10 and 11 for us to know that we are now at term, on, on peaceful terms with him. And he says that we've been saved, we will be saved, rescued, and delivered from what is to come. 
specifically from the wrath of God that's to come. And, and to let you know that the wrath of God is not, it's not this emotional outburst. It's this long-standing, growing, kind of pregnant anger and hatred towards sin that God has. God doesn't respond with these emotional outbursts of anger, but rather it's this growing disposition of hatred towards your sin and towards mine. And so we see what it is that we have in this change of status before God. That, that, that growing disposition of hatred towards sin and the sinner is replaced with complete love and favor and mercy with him. Brought into a new relational reality where we live with him on terms of peace. And we see that God does this in our lives not because of anything that we have, not because of anything of who we are, but because of his own desire to do it. You think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. Well, through 29, I'll read. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human meat being might boast in the presence of God. And that's why Paul would go on in chapter 2 to say, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's what he's talking about in Romans 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Right, The very things that we hate, we hate weakness, we hate fear, we hate trembling. But Paul says, I came to you in this way. Why? And my speech was not... And my, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, and, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God chooses to save the weak, the ungodly, the sinful enemy of his and uses them for tremendous works for his glory and for the expansion of the kingdom. By his divine declaration, he does something in our lives and he changes us from being, having a standing before him that is one thing and it is now different. And he uses then those people as his instruments, which means he uses you. No matter how you see yourself, if you are in Christ and you've been reconciled and been given peace and you are saved from the wrath to come, then you are a prime candidate for him to use for his glory and to expand his kingdom. And you may say, well, I'm weak. I stutter. 
I, I get in the midst of conversations. I can't think straight. Perfect. God's strength is put on display in your moments of weakness. Not only is there a change in our standing, but we see that Christ's death brings about that change. Secondly, we see that Christ's death is what brings about that change. And we see this all throughout the text. Verses 6 and 8, Christ died. Verse 9, by his blood, by him. Verse 10, by the death of his son, by his life. And who he is and what he has done becomes front and center magnified. How does the change actually take place? Well, while you were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For God shows his love for us and that we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath to God, wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see the work of Christ becomes front and center to the ministry, to our, our change of standing. How is it? How is it that we gain from his reward? I, the only answer I can give is that Christ died for me. As I've said before, the man on the, how, how did you get here? The man on the middle cross said I could come. His death is what brings about the change in our standing before him. Justification by faith, reconciliation, peace, grace are not just declarations. They are the product of a work on our behalf. Jesus accomplishes something. He works for us. The demands, the covenant of works, if you want to put it in terms like that, the demands that God has in order to have fellowship with him of perfection, he calls for every single person to work for and yet we cannot. And so what does Christ do? He works on our behalf. He works by his death, and he works by his life. If you would put it in terms of his active obedience and his passive obedience. We're, the passage says here that we're, we're saved by his life. The perfect life that he lived the righteousness that he maintained. We talked about this before when we were in Romans chapter 4, verse 13. The righteousness that God requires for us to have of perfection. Christ has that. And he gives it to us by his life lived, his act of obedience. He, he actively lived perfectly, always obeying the Father, not just in action, but in attitude. And that righteousness is, is given to us. And because of that, we're saved. We're delivered from the wrath to come because we now have a righteousness that God requires in order to escape wrath and have fellowship with him. But the good news of the gospel is that it's not a righteousness you came up with or, or earned on your own. It was a righteousness given to you. Why? Simply because he declared that it would be so. And he decided for you to be his child. And death of Christ is what brings that about. His perfect life lived, but then his atoning death as well. 
he actually, not only do we get his righteousness, but he receives our wrath fully and completely poured out upon him so that we can be delivered from the wrath to come. And he uses the word here for or on behalf of, in the place of, as a substitute of. He died for me and for you, in place of you, as your substitute for you. And, and he says it does it at the right time, while we were sinners, right? For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for un- the ungodly. Verse 6 and verse 8. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The at the right time is a, is a, a reference to our sinful condition. While we, you were still weak and ungodly and a sinner and an enemy, that's when Christ died for you. He didn't ask you to clean up your life and then come to him. He dies for you when you're at your worst. The the whole idea, oh, God helps those who help themselves, that's not true. Christ died for you when you couldn't help yourself and you didn't want to help yourself because you actively would prefer to live in open rebellion to him. There's no in salvation there's no, there's no process of becoming a better person and cleaning yourself up, and then you can come to Christ. He dies for sinners. He dies for the ungodly. He dies for his enemies. It's only those who see themselves truly in that way who can then receive what it is that Christ has done because we see our sinful condition. And we see him and who he is. And then he says in verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Shall we be delivered by his life? Of course, once you are reconciled, you will also be delivered by him. Reconciliation and deliverance are inseparable. If you've been reconciled from Christ, if you've been reconciled by Christ to God, through Christ to God, you will be delivered from the wrath to come. Now that's good news. The believer never has to live in a fear of God's wrath and judgment upon their sin. We know that we live in a position of peace and of grace with him. And it's accomplished by the blood of Christ. He would say in verse 9 that it was by his blood. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12, 11 and 12 would say this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more, through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. We're saved by his blood, by his sacrifice. This 
reminds us that there was actually a sacrifice that took place in order for this change in status to happen between us and God. And it was the work and the death of Christ and the shedding of his blood that accomplished it. But not only that, thirdly, not only does the change of our standing come about because of the death of Christ, but it's the love of God that brings about the death of Christ. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why does Christ pay your debt? Why does he give you his righteousness when you don't deserve it? Why does he shed his blood? Why does he come? Why does he live a perfect life? Why is he completely always devoted to the work that he's been called to do? Why is he beaten? Why is a a crown of thorns thrust upon his head? Why is he spit upon and mocked and whipped and had his back filleted and laid open? Because the love of God put him forward to do that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's I don't care which theological camp you find you're in. John 3.16 is true. For while he says, again, but God shows his love for us. And that we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, there's one thing that I know is true, is that people love a good, people love, a good love story. I mean, books, movies, on love stories, they always do well. And there's been some good ones. You think of, Romeo and Juliet, you think of Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, you think of Wesley and Buttercup, Aragorn and Arwen, and who can forget Han and Leah. And there is even some good love stories in the Bible as well, right? Think of Jacob and Leah, or Jacob and Rachel instead, not Jacob and Leah. You think of Boaz and Ruth. But there's a love story within the Bible that's actually greater. How many people, when they think of good biblical love stories, think of Hosea and Gomer? Think of Christ and his bride. Think of Jesus and you. I mean, what the text makes clear to us is that Jesus doesn't love the lovable and the beautiful, he loves the ugly and the unlovable. And this truth comes together and weighs upon our heart to remind us of who God is and what he has done and out of love, him putting forward his son for us. Christ's death is how God proves the degree of his love as he puts forth his beloved son. I thought of John 13, 1, and I love the way that John 13, 1 puts it. As God's, in Christ's enduring love is modeled for us, 
before Jesus washes his disciples' feet and serves them in that way and tells us that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Don't you think, don't you know that the same is true for you and for me who are in Christ? That he loves us to the end? What did Wayne read for us this morning in Romans 8.35? I mean, what's the thing, what's one of the things that can become the most detrimental idea to the believer? Is there anything, God, that can separate me from your love? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall my tribulations or distresses, or persecutions, or famines, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I mean, the God is not a robot but that he is operating out of a love for his people and that if he loved you to the degree to put forth your son, doesn't he continue to keep you in his love? Doesn't he intend for you to always be with him? To receive his love and to experience his love and to enjoy him and his love for all of eternity? Beloved, it is out of love that you struggle. It is out of love that you go through what you go through. It is not happenstance. There is no chance. If you are in Christ, everything that he does is a display of his love for you. And he's refining you so that your love might be solely in him. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to learn to love your neighbor as yourself. What God requires to be delivered from his wrath, he lovingly provides. And fourthly, then what is our response? Our worship is the response to his love. You look at verse 11. Not only that, we rejoice, should take us back to boasting in verse 3. We boast in verse 2 of the hope of the glory of God. We boast in our sufferings in verse 3. And we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What a wonderful way to end up the passage in, in talking about what it is that Christ has done for us. To boast, to rejoice, to respond in, in worship to him. That he lovingly put forth his son and killed his own son for the, the, un, for the sick, ungodly, sinful enemy of his. We boast and we rejoice because we have received Reconciliation, and do note the word received. 
It is something that he has given. You were not pursuing terms of peace with God. You were actively, openly hostile. People who are non-believers, they're not, I mean, right? Romans chapter 3, verse 10, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. People are not searching for God to be on peaceful terms with him. God is the one that pursues. God is the one that establishes terms of peace. He sets the terms, and then he establishes the terms, and then he meets the terms. And you and I are simply recipients of of reconciliation. And so, I mean, like, what's the natural response to that? What are you going to do? Oh, that's cool. I'll catch you later. I mean, the person who's really received that and understands it and knows it responds in worship. I, I, I want to, to boast in God, as the text says. I want to rejoice in God. I want to boast in him, his, his perfections, his character, his names, the display of his love, all that he does, how he treats me, what he has planned for me, what he's done in the church. I mean, I want to boast in him in him alone, because it's all about him and it's all his working. It's all coming about because of his work. Like, bad things happen because we work. Bad things are a product of us. Good things. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, lights. He works good, and we are recipients of this reconciliation that he's given to us. And he is the object of our praise. We're rejoicing in worship is the proper response to all of this. And when we are mindful of this, we can rejoice always. I want to give us one really just exhortation before we move to the communion table this morning. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded that through all of this, it should humble us. All of us should be humbled because of God's divine declaration of our standing before him, death of Christ and what he's accomplished for us, the love of God that moved the Son to do, accomplish this work, and the privilege that we have to be able to respond and worship to him should cultivate and create within us humility. Obviously, we know that the opposite of humility is pride. Pride sets in when we cease to see ourselves as unlovable, ugly people. Pride sets in when you cease to see yourself as Gomer, the unlovable, ugly prostitute. And, the, and you know when pride is beginning to set in, one of the telltale signs of pride is unforgiveness. You see yourself as being too beautiful, too lovely, in order to forgive somebody who has wronged you. How dare they do that to me? Have you forgotten who you were? Have you forgotten your ugliness? Have you forgotten your weakness, your sinfulness, your ungodliness, 
your eneminess in the eyes of God? That when someone has wronged you, and yes, we wrong each other to incredibly hurtful and harmful degrees. I'm not downplaying that. And I'm not saying that working through forgiveness is an easy thing to do. What I'm saying is that it becomes exponentially more difficult when you lose sight of you oftentimes being the offender and the lavish forgiveness that God gives you and I. That's a product of pride. We see ourselves as being too lovely to be sinned against. And forgetting who we are in the eyes of the Lord. When we grow impatient with others, unwilling to, or being unwilling or intolerant to be around certain people that don't contribute to your life or your well-being, that's an expression of pride. You're no different, saved by, from the, saved by the grace of God. You would still be doing that deplorable, wretched stuff you were doing before, save for the grace of God displayed in your life and Him reconciling you. Where do we get off thinking that we are better than other people? And continue to rejoice in Him and have Him at the center of our lives, which is what we do in our time of communion. The communion time is a wonderful time of repentance, of confession as we examine our hearts because we should be reminded of our own ugliness and our own sinfulness. And in a contrast to that, the, the incredible beauty and glory and loving kindness of God shown to us in Christ. I, I, I take these elements and I'm remind, I, I think of this fact every time I take these elements. Why am I doing this? I don't deserve to do this. He promises that I will feast with him at a table for all of eternity. I don't deserve access to that table. If you were at all aware and in tune with your own sinfulness, I imagine you feel somewhat the same way. And yet, we partake. Why? Not because I deserve to be at the table. Not because I'm worth being at the table, but because he has invited me and he has given me a chair and he has called me and declared for me to come because of what his son has done for me. Don't you know my son died for you? You come to this table and you eat. And I come with humility and I come with with joy and thankfulness. That's how I pray we come to the communion table. And being humbled, then we can begin to meet and minister to one another and be desirous and willing to share the gospel with those who are not reconciled to him. So the elements are for, they're on the back table, and this is a time for the believer. And if you are a believer and you're visiting today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, then we invite you to partake. But if you don't know Christ, to think and to consider that you stand now unreconciled to God and there is a wrath that awaits you to come, and it is awful, and it is eternal. 
but that he has sent his son to reconcile you and he calls you to come. So the elements are on the table. You can get those, return back to your seat and we'll have some time of prayer uh, and then partake of the communion elements together shortly.